I'm Pam Mungrew. Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lenses of those striving for a better world. In 2016, there were an estimated 40 million people worldwide in modern slavery. 70% of these were women and girls. The Reverend Dr. Carrie Pemberton Ford is the Development Director of the Cambridge Centre for Applied Research in Human Trafficking. In this episode of the Social Ideas podcast, Carrie discusses the work and research being done to combat human trafficking and why she considers it to be one of the greatest violations of human rights. I began by asking her why she has dedicated the last 15 years of her life fighting human trafficking. So I was actually working in an immigration removal centre and I met several people, men, women and some children, who had been trafficked. It was in 2002. At the time, uh, there wasn't much awareness of, of trafficking in, in the UK. Some lawyers had started to pay some attention to this because the UNODC uh, which is uh, the United Nations organisations uh, to uh, combat serious crime, organised crime in uh, drugs, had put into the Palermo Protocol, which uh, was then signed up to in 2002, a protocol that looked at human trafficking and tried to make uh, some sort of global sense of this so that Uh, various nations could start incorporating legislation against human trafficking into their national legislatures. Uh, And this has started to happen since about 2002, and we are now, where are we, 2019. There's now the majority of states across the the world have got uh, some articulation of the Palermo Protocol in their national legislation. But at the time... It was only a handful. It was extraordinary. And in the early days, what I did, because it, it was clear that what was needed was um, a place for safety for people who were, who, who were being revealed as having been trafficked um, so that their cases could be looked at because most of them were third country nationals who I was looking at. Third country meant that they were outside of the EU. Of course, if they'd been surfaced as people who'd been trafficked, cases weren't started up against their traffickers. Um, what happened was people were being removed immediately uh, back to their, their country of what we'd call country of source, their home country. Now this, for me, was a complete offence, human rights devastation offence. And so I got a charity going uh, which uh, involved the churches uh, it was called uh, Churches Alert to Sex Trafficking Across Europe. And we set up the first faith-based housing response in Britain, uh, which now has been taken forward uh, by one of the first um, members around our round table, uh, which was the Salvation Army. And I worked on that until uh, in 2008, having been to the United Nations Gift Conference, which was the Global Initiative to Fight Trafficking, I realised that what was deeply required in this arena was an intergovernmental, interdisciplinary, multi-agency response because human trafficking isn't a single source, single response 
issue. It's embedded across the way a society operates and how we operate internationally. So the response needs to be interagency, multidisciplinary and international in, in terms of cross-governmental. Can you explain what the Palermo Protocol is? The Palermo Protocol is the basis on which all the nations that are gathering together now around the under the UN flag uh, to address trafficking are actually referring to. So their legislation is going to be looked at as whether it's Palermo Protocol compliant or not. And the point about the Palermo Protocol is that it looked at the action and then um, the means and then the purpose of what was going on inside what is seen as fundamentally a criminal act but it's also actually an immense human rights violation. And these are the two um, elements that need to be taken forward by any state government as as they look at what's going on and what they can do to both uh, intervene on it and then make sure that they get their prosecutions in. The prosecutions have been, been poor in relation to the number of victims that have been identified. Uh, and in terms of the number of those who are uh, suspected of being part of uh, some sort of trafficking networks internationally. The protocol talked about an action and a means and a purpose. The action was the securing of um, uh, people uh, to, to be trafficked. The means is the force or the fraud or the coercion or the manipulation of psychological dependence, the grooming that actually brings them into that vortex, if you like. And then the purpose is to exploit them for the gain of the individual or the network that is exploiting them. So that can be either in commercialised sex or in labour trafficking, criminalisation of children so that's why county lines is now being looked at as potentially a trafficking conduit and children are used for trafficking purposes here in the UK. As the years have gone by it's been opened up to look at domestic servitude for many years that was uh, kept a bit to the side of the whole trafficking discourse because it wasn't quite seen how that could be an organised criminal group operating. And so as the years have gone by, and in the UK, as the 2015 legislation came in, which then introduced an American uh, terminology around modern slavery, uh, the arena of attention as to what human trafficking and modern slavery is looking like has expanded. And, you know, it's precisely this range that uh, the symposium, the CART symposium, explores elements of every year because now it's become a really uh, hydra-headed monster, which is what it was initially announced as, actually, by the UN Secretary-General back in 2005 which is a horrible thing, it's a horrendous thing, and it can be a very depressing thing to think of that that image. But a research element, and a research element that is applied, that's the applied in the the CART uh, acronym, you know, we're an applied research centre, 
working across with NGOs, religious organisations, academics, politicians, prosecutors, those who are involved in the protective services and the intelligence services, they all come together around a common table, which is extraordinary. What then needs to happen for trafficking to be eradicated? Is it enough that you're taking the steps to work with these organisations and give them the strength to then move forward? Or is there, is there more that needs to be done to help that progress further and faster? It's, it's very complex. And what we're seeking to do is to reflect on actions and policies that have been operating over the last, because we've now got, you know, we're nearly up to 20 years since the Palermo Protocol. That gives some ability to look back as to things that have been tried. The European Union has put in extensive amounts, I mean massive amounts of money, on counter-trafficking work and counter-trafficking projects and initiatives to try and look at whether you can in raising awareness in countries of source, does that make a difference? If you raise the ability of identification and training of those who are in the professional protective services, such as the police, does that make a difference? Uh, does putting legislation in a coherent manner uh, and raising the awareness and the abilities of those who are in the Crown Prosecution Services, in the criminal justice systems, does that make a difference? Does increasing prosecutions effectively make a difference? Is it about raising consciousness of the consumer down the supply chains, because we've now got transparency in the supply chains that can go right back to the source uh, process or right down the, the, the supply chain and the value chain? That's now in place in, in Britain, but it's only there as a voluntary process um, and it's only applying to those who are over a, a threshold of 30 million uh, turnover. So, you know, that, that doesn't catch um, the huge number of small uh, and medium level businesses in this, in this country. Um, but it is looked at as a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a strong paradigm for running out in other countries, and other countries now are starting to take that on. So, you know, there's all this matrix that needs to be uh, looked at. Eradication, you know, I think probably means such a fundamental transformation of, of cultures, of cooperation, of the coming in of genuine equalities globally, internationally, across nations, across the way that we deal with our inter-ethnic differences, our, our gendered differences, those, those inequalities. We are striving to push down on those and to generate equality and mutual respect, right? Right across the board. That actually is part and parcel of what drives trafficking. All those inequalities, all those places where we don't have appropriate social protection, all those places where people are put into vulnerability brings the opportunity for people to exploit. It's very easy to think that this is something that was, you know, part of our past. Why is it 
that it seems more prevalent now? Is it because we're more aware of it or oh. is it because it is becoming more lucrative? Well, that is a very interesting question in terms of, because that drives us down to numbers and also about perception. Um, because, Pam, I'm in agreement with you that actually um, exploitation, serious exploitation, uh, indented, what used to be called indentured labour, servitude, has been uh, present across multiple nations over time. The present numbering of human trafficking and modern slavery in contemporary society across the globe has varied between you know, 20 point something million to 42 point something million. There are some outliers that put this into the 120 million. Uh, if you look at that in terms of what percentage that is of the global population, it's really looking at something like 0.5%. That's one in every 200 persons. Now, I think what's happened is, I don't think the numbers are changing that much seriously. I think what, what is changing is our ability to s see what is going on and the framing which we are placing around it. So we're saying, well, that's trafficking. Ooh, well, trafficking is horrendous. So, wow, we should pay attention to that rather than letting it slide along as an issue that occupies some people who are into international development uh, and leave it at that, that it's nothing to do with me. I think the, one of the big breakthroughs that's happening around the whole storyline, if you like, the narrative of human trafficking and modern slavery is that people are starting to connect. Citizens in the West and in the northern states are starting, and, and indeed in the southern states, are starting to connect that this massive human rights violation which is captured in trafficking is something that actually connects with their lives too. You talk very, um, you've, you've mentioned it often, and, and this is really so that I can understand. Mm. Um, you, you've mentioned the West, yeah. the North, yeah. the South. There's such a cultural division that you're identifying. Mm. And I'm, I'm not sure I really understand why there's such a cultural division, because surely it doesn't matter whether you're east west north south of the of the globe the world, yeah. and culturally speaking mm. or racially speaking however you want to define it mm. human trafficking is happening everywhere mm -hmm. but why is there such a delineation you know you're right i i talk about these variations in location because trafficking alters itself and the ways that states respond to it shift across the globe there isn't a single best practice that is operating and there isn't a single line of where victims are, are being recruited from and where they're being exploited. What we know is that in the northern states, in the west... What do you mean by the northern states? Well, the northern states are North Atlantic states, uh, north of the Sahara. If they're members of the G7, the, these are countries that are the most uh, sought after for exploiting people internationally, so bringing in victims from Vietnam, 
Eritrea, Nigeria, uh, the whole movement that's been happening across the Mediterranean with the destabilization that's been happening in Libya, the uncertainties, uh, civil war that is happening in Africa, creates this vortex of movement, many of whom will be actually exploited on the African continent itself, where suddenly they become of interest to European governments is when the movement moves into uh, the European states um, and their and their governance and their human rights protective orbit. As governments are becoming uh, more held to account, and they've been held to account by what's called the US TIP report, which is the Trafficking in Persons report that comes out every year and is sponsored by the US State, uh, State Department. Governments are graded on a scale of classified one, two, and then watch. And if they go onto that watch list, then other financial incentives to conform with the Palermo Protocol guidance can kick in against them you know, in terms of development aid, etc. This is the worry that, that those governments, those state, states would have. So that's been in place and informing international political responses to human trafficking um, over the last oh, it's 15 years now with the um, US TIP report. However, some of the highest gain on trafficking is done on the international shift. If you can move a labourer who you have under your control without any sort of rights, no unionised rights and no legal contract rights that would be upheld by a court of law. And if you can move them to a place where you can be making a thousand percent of what you're selling them out for to the next door neighbour um, state which is, has got a low economy and no economic value, you're going to move those labourers to that place where you can max out your gain, which is why the EU has become a place for profound labour exploitation. When terms like West, North, South are yeah. used, it's all too easy to imagine that the perpetrator and the victims of trafficking mm. are of a certain culture, of a certain race, of oh. a certain skin colour, of a certain religion. And I, I wonder if that, in some respects, gives us the opportunity to, to divest ourselves of some form of responsibility if we're from the UK? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Thanks for that, uh, Pam, because what's been found in the um, examination of trafficking networks is that you will get the grooming and the recruitment happening from frequently same nationals as those who are being exploited. And then with the transportation, and the, the if, if they are going across um, borders... But with the transportation, you can often have a third country uh, uh, national uh, involved in that. But in terms of then exploiting the victim in the country of destination, then that will include both organised criminal networks that are of that country of destination, as well as, of course, all the customers who are the country of destination nationals, plus 
If you look at the national referral mechanism numbers, which is the uh, way of reporting at present uh, those who are understood to have been trafficked here in the UK, uh, you will see that the highest number of those trafficked last year actually were um, UK nationals in, in terms of the children. You're holding a symposium this year. This is not the first that you've done. Well, look, you know, we've been chatting about the complexity of trafficking. And as we've been talking, you know, there have been points where I've been referring to reports and you've been saying, well, what's that and why is that significant, etc. Those who are working in government, in policy, in protection, in the judiciary, um, in NGOs working to respond to... Uh, the human rights devastation that trafficking brings in its wake actually need times to come aside a bit and have a look at what's been happening, what their challenges have been, what the new trends or strands that they don't quite get are emerging in in their interaction uh, with both uh, traffickers, um, those who've been trafficked, and indeed those who consume. Because remember, uh, you, know, you only have a market if there's consumption. So if we've got a trafficking market here in the UK, it's because we've got consumers in their thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, consuming. So that, that needs to be paid attention to. So last year we looked at the five T's of trafficking, which were terror, transport, trauma, transparency of the supply chains and the work of tech. So this year we're looking at the several R's and amongst those it will be uh, you know what what happens around a recovery. You know what does recovery look like for a victim of trafficking? Does it matter if a victim of trafficking has been a victim of sex trafficking or labor trafficking? Does it matter the age at which they were recruited? Does it matter that they've been involved in some sort of criminality? Uh, which has been uh, then uh, responded to by by the police in a in a, an ambiguous manner because they can't work out whether they're they're victim or criminal. Does it matter if you've been embedded in gangs in your own country, as with County Lines? These are all very very important questions. That just is around recovery. Then we can look at uh, return. What is the what is the return policy in a country? Does that how does that affect the longer-term impact on how trafficking is being handled by a country, whether there is going to be a long-term commitment of finance to actually securing refugee-style rights because you're a protected group, uh, having been trafficked in a country in the country of destination. Where is all that sitting? Um, what about um, removal uh, and and? We're looking this year at removal of organs. Now, there's not been any cases of removal of organs in the UK, but there are removal of organs aplenty going on in Libya, in India, across North Africa, and concern uh, around places in in the Balkans. So we're going to have specialists in to talk about that. Now, does that affect a UK citizen? What happens if somebody goes over to the Balkans to have a kidney donated and then comes back. How does that work? So that is rather like what happened in terms of looking at sex trafficking. 
sex trafficking was originally seen as purely the uh, the victim being brought to the UK for exploitation. But what about when male customers travelled out of Britain to access those for sex trafficking outside of the country? Where did that all sit? And this is very important to understand the different motivations that are going on and also the different socio-economic, racialized, gendered stratification of difference. It's what's called intersectionality. People get caught in different sets of social realities that are either meaning that they will become more likely to be vulnerable to being exploited or more likely to be those who are happy to exploit. That was the Reverend Dr. Carrie Pemberton Ford from the Cambridge Centre for Applied Research in Human Trafficking. You can find out more about the organisation's summer symposium by visiting www.ccarht.org. And you can find out more about us, the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation, by following us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn.